So Amy, I was excited to have um, an opportunity to talk a little bit about um, what I've been noticing in the podcast community. Um, and what I hear really frequently is the struggles that people are having with accessing endocrinology, frustrations they have with their endocrinologist or especially with their primary care provider. And um, I thought it would be fun for us to have a conversation with some of the questions that we've heard from our friends and, you know, colleagues or online um, about these particular issues. Um, so I thought it'd be fun to kind of have that conversation with you today. Uh, I also want to preface it with, um, I think it's really important that my, you know, while I am a doctor, um, I think I'm... I'm going to try not to come off as defensive because I, that was definitely not my intent with this. I think it's it's a nice way to share information and maybe explain some of the things that people may not just understand. But I think also just realizing that our our healthcare system is so messed up and broken at this point that a lot of the barriers that people are bumping up against are as frustrating for their healthcare provider. Also, like before I got on the this interview with you, I was looking at my insurance formulary to figure out vaccine prescriptions, you know, which is the inhaled glucagon and, you know, what tier it is and how much it's going to cost. And it's the beginning of the year. So everything's like super expensive. And anyway, so, you know, for me as a provider, but also as a person living with diabetes, it's like I'm in the same boat and often have to experience a lot of these challenges too. So our system's just really a mess, but that's not what this conversation was about. <laughs> We're just, we're, we're raising awareness. We're, yes. you know, looking at the whole story instead of just sections of the story. Yes. And Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, just to kind of give people a frame of what, what you'd go through to become an endocrinologist, because often I think there's a lot of frustration. I certainly heard about it last week with how hard it is to find an endocrinologist, how long it takes to get in to see them. Often people are switching because they're not happy with the one that they have um, or, you know, their insurance dictates who they can see and they don't want to see that particular person. The way the training happens is you do four years of medical school, then you do three years of internal medicine, medicine residency, and then you do two to three years of endocrinology fellowship. So all told, it's about, you know, nine to 10 years of education and training in order to become an endocrinologist. So it's a lot. Yeah. For those um, people who are either family practice doctors or internal medicine doctors who are who a lot of people see for kind of other stuff besides diabetes, um, often their exposure to endocrinology is really limited. So when you do your three years, I mean, you do medical school, obviously, and you learn about some of this stuff, but a lot of what you retain is what you kind of experience when you're in the hospital and clinics, all that stuff when you're a resident. And as a resident, usually you have a month of endocrinology, maybe. A lot of places don't have, you know, you have to pick what your rotations are going to be and you may not get endocrinology or you may not have endocrinologists at the hospital you train at. So it can be really limited exposure. Um, and often you're learning about a lot of other endocrine disorders, thyroid disease, adrenal disease, bone disease, and you may not get a whole lot of diabetes. So I guess I just wanted to make sure that we kind of called out, especially for primary care doctors, because I hear a lot of frustration that way that my primary care doesn't know anything about diabetes. Yeah. And you know, 90% of people have type two. So they're often really savvy with type two diabetes, but type one, you just, you may not see that often. It's just not a very common disorder. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think again, not to excuse, because there certainly are a lot of doctors out there who don't handle 
diabetes very well and don't respect their patients' perspectives. And there's a lot of that that I hear about where, you know, patients go in trying to tell their doctor about their experience and they're sort of shut down because the, they get in sort of power struggle with their doctor. And that's, that's always really uncomfortable. And, and yeah, that's probably, often- I would say that's probably universal across all kinds mm-hmm. of um, relationships between patient and doctor. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that's different for us is that our relationship with our doctor never ends. It's ongoing. Right. Right. Some people might have a, I mean, I guess a lot of things you have a doctor for your whole life, but it's just a much more involved relationship when you're living with type one, in my opinion. And I think often too, docs or providers may not give the person living with the disorder enough credit because they, they think they often feel like, well, just do this or just come on. You know, it's so easy, which is laughable, but you know, I mean, it, diabetes is so unique in that it impacts like everything, you know, what you do, how you eat, how you sleep. I mean, just like everything. And I think there that healthcare may not, uh, you know, get that as much. um, How I'd be curious to know what percentage of endocrinologists have type one, like yourself. Often the endocrinologists that I've had in the past had some sort of, you know, family, Um, someone in the family who had diabetes. And so that kind of inspired them to get into this field. And, but those, I think those are the doctors that you really believe and you're really going to follow advice because you live it. So I don't know, trusting the doctor that the endocrinologist doesn't have type one, you know, it's kind of taking on the responsibility ourselves of educating them instead of like just going in there and being passive and handing over your, um, your CGM information and all of that to, I I do think it's on us also, if the doctor doesn't understand to educate them. Yeah. And I think that's where it can get complicated because not every provider is open to that sort of education. You know what I mean? They may feel like, well, I must, you know, I'm the expert here and they may not be. And so that's, that's, That's I think sometimes a little, that's where there could be some frustration. So um, I think that's a uh, characteristic that, you know, a provider with or without diabetes can have that can be really helpful, which is being open-minded and trying to take an interest in your patient's experience and what they may be trying to share with you and also balancing that sometimes, you know, the person sharing that information still may need some help in terms of decision-making and judgment, because sometimes they may feel like the patient may feel like they know what they're doing, but you know, they just haven't had a lot of education. They may just not know like that low blood sugars and severe low blood sugars can have consequences that they may just, it's fine for my blood sugar to be low. And, you know, it just certain things that it may be worthwhile to hear what your provider has to say about even if they don't have it. Oh, and then also, I guess just to get back to your question about how many people have type, how many providers have type one diabetes, there's a lot of us really? actually who live with type one, who yeah. um, practice endocrinology. And I again, think that's a very unique thing because you don't hear about like people with heart disease becoming cardiologists or right. people with ulcers becoming gastroenterologists, you know, like I mean, yeah. maybe, but you know, it's just different that way. So there are a lot of people I think who are drawn to the field because of ways that their they've, their health has been managed or inspiration to try to give back or a family member or whatever. So I think it is also, again, another unique aspect to it. There's a lot of people out there who have some sort of relationship with diabetes who practice 
So that was one of the things that we wanted to kind of yes. take home was just an understanding of um, just the duration of training. And then I think to get to that question of why there's such a shortage, yes. I'm not totally sure. I get that question a lot when people come in to see me and they're really mad because it's taken so long. Yeah. And they're often like, well, why? And, I, and I'm like, I don't know why people don't want to go into endocrinology. I can say that, you know, it takes so, a long- wait, so the reason it takes so long to get an appointment, say three months or whatever, is because there's a so little, few, so few endocrinologists. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. right. I mean, that's how it is in our community. And that's certainly what I hear. I mean, as pe- especially as people get more rural and further out. Right. Um, and I think it's a complicated kind of answer in that it takes a long time. It's one of the lowest paid specialties. Is um, it really? It is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's still like, you know, if one you look of the at the highest, most expensive illnesses, but one of the, isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's got a um, a huge burden of paperwork, like higher than primary care. There's a lot of just stuff you have to do with insurance company companies and documentation and all of that kind of stuff that you know is not very fun for anybody. I mean, those are kind of the 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 big ones. I mean, I think the lifestyle piece is great for for some people. Um, you know, you you often don't have a lot of in hospital work because there's not a lot of you know emergencies. There are some, but not as many as like cardiology or pulmonary or places where people can get sick and get really, really sick so fast right. um, with a lot of different things. Um, so I think lifestyle wise, it's, it's heavily weighted toward, there's more women in endocrinology by. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And huh. I think that that's maybe partially because of the out more outpatient focus as opposed to inpatient focus. So it tends to be easier to balance maybe, but it's a lot of thinking. So I think for people who like to think and problem solve and that type of thing, um, endocrinology can be really interesting, but I think there's a lot of other parts of it that are less. And I know in like getting ready to talk to you about this, we've known about the shortage for 20 years. Like there was a thing commissioned by the Endocrine Society back in 20, 2003 to identify this huge shortage of endocrinologists that was anticipated and they expanded the slots for fellowships so they could train more people and people weren't signing up. So despite yeah. the more opportunities, people just aren't going into it. And I think that's kind of hard to identify why that is. But I think those other things we just mentioned are probably partially that. And so just, I don't know, this may be a dumb question, but the insurance piece is that something that all, no matter what your specialty is, you would be having to deal with these insurance stuff, but but as an endocrinologist, there's just more because of the nature of diabetes? Or if you're at a big hospital, would you be dealing with insurance paperwork or would there be some kind of admin dealing with that stuff for you? That's a really good question. I think uh, it seems like endocrinology has more a weight on, you know, formularies, medicines that are expensive, technologies that are expensive, that require a lot of paperwork. Um, This thing called a prior authorization, which is like, Uh, you can't get what you want and you have to go jump through these extra hoops and fill out these other forms. That's really, there's a lot of that in endocrinology. Um, And I just, I, I think other specialties that may have, you know, honestly, better compensation and procedures where they just have more, they can have more staff to help with some of that stuff. Um, and we just don't do as much of that kind of thing in endocrinology. And I think staffing for everybody right now is really hard, having enough medical assistance and frontline kind of staff people and that type of thing, which makes it harder to do all that stuff. So I do think there's more in our specialty than maybe others. 
Um, I think I, I became more aware of more recently when um, I told you about my whole thing with not being able to get Lantus using like my whole life. And I really love Lantus and that we had to go back and forth with my doctor's office and uh, sending messages on my chart, which I felt so guilty about sending her messages. Cause <laughs> you know, I'm like, I, I, I hope she's only checking this during work hours and not when I'm sending it in you know the middle of the night or whatever. We had to go back and forth three times with the insurance of being rejected and again and back and forth. And in my head, I was just assuming that her admin was doing that for her. Yeah. I think they, they can help with some stuff, but when it comes down to like the nitty gritty of, you know, why you need a certain type of right. insulin or why you need a certain type of device, often it comes back to the healthcare provider to fill out the form uh, or yeah. do the documentation. And that sort of stuff is really important because if you go to the pharmacy and you get this insulin, you're like, what is this? Yeah. Totally different. You know, what is this? And then there's confusion. Is this the right stuff? And, and anyway, so I think the formulary switches, which are huge in, um, especially with insurances changing how they negotiate lower costs for insulin, since it's so expensive and confusing for people. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that stuff. I know. I know. It used to be, it used to be that it would only happen like in the beginning of the year. Cause it was like mm. January was when they would announce right. all the formulary changes or whatever. And now it's like all the time right. <laughs> trying to figure out Get like, around. which, yeah, you know, which one they'll pay for. And, oh my gosh, it can just be maddening. Oh, I know. It'd make me want to scream. Right. Like and most recently yeah. I told you my, I got a letter from my insurance saying you can no longer go to this pharmacy, whatever reason has changed. So now I have to go to a different pharmacy, which is not a big deal, but I love all, I love my pharmacist and I know all of the people who right. work there and they know me. And, um, it, that was disappointing. That was frustrating to hear about that too. And I mean, nothing I can do about that, but I think, and I think that's a big thing too. Now, how much of it is being driven by just your insurance, like yeah. the choices that you have available to you. It's just, it changes the kind of the whole, landscape. And it just, I think feels weird to all of us that you're, you know, whoever's managing your care now is not your healthcare team. It's actually your insurance. Would you advise that um, people see an endocrinologist twice a year and the rest of the time see a CDE or I mean, what, what do you see as the best approach. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, um, it probably depends to some extent what kind of resources you have in your community. So I think, um, you know, it really varies person to person. Um, I think if you have a CDE that you feel like you've got a good relationship with who understands type one and because sometimes that's a, a limitation, um, then I think they can be a huge resource uh, in giving advice and, you know, recommendations and that kind of stuff, especially around food. It depends in many places if the CDEs can do specifics like medication adjustments, um, some places they can't. And so, or they need supervision to do that stuff. So it's more about, you know, just overall education. Um, but yeah, I think two, three times a year with your endo is totally reasonable. I have some people I see once a year because they're super motivated and they'll let me know if they're having any issues. I see some people every couple of months um, because they're really struggling and that might be just for a period of time and then they get right. more independent. I think that is one thing that I wanted to also call out is that because of the shortage of endocrinologists, I think it's important to know who your other alternatives are. So like in our community, we have endocrine nurse practitioners, 
phys- uh, physician assistants. And often those are people who've done training specifically in endocrinology, and they're often really helpful and they have a lot of experience and knowledge. And I think some people with diabetes may be less comfortable working with one of them, think that they don't know as much, and that's just not true. And often they're a huge resource and bridge between your endocrine appointments. And yeah, and that's actually who I'm seeing now. And mm-hmm. she I, she can write all my prescriptions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And she's been like the most amazing doctor that I've had in my whole 30 years of living with this. And mm-hmm. and, and she is an endocrine nurse. practitioner. Yeah. And yeah. she, I mean, she's brilliant. And she, yeah. um, I, I feel, I just feel very fortunate to have her. And that right. was something I didn't even realize before. Right. That was just like at the office one day and they were saying, well, you know, you could get an appointment with so-and-so sooner instead of having to wait, you know, the three months. And I was like, sure, that's yeah. great. Um, so that's worked out. I, I definitely encourage people to look into that because I love mine. Yeah. And I think a lot of that group of providers has grown so much over the last year, especially physician assistants. And they, they are a huge resource. Nurse practitioners are a huge resource. They're not, they're not medical doctors. So they don't do all those years like we do, but they have their own training and they have opportunities to specialize and often have a lot to offer. The other thing that we have in Oregon, I know they have a lot of places, um, but it varies state to state is a clinical pharmacist. So they can be, you guys have those in South Carolina? I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. yeah. So often there are people um, who go through pharmacy school, of course, and then they do a clinical internship and get a lot of training. Like our clinical pharmacists do a lot of work with the diabetes. They work with us and endocrinology clinic, and then they work in primary care. And um, they're a huge resource because uh, pharmacists that we have in our clinic just know drugs so well and yeah. medication interactions, and they can help with all the prior auths and the formularies and all of that stuff. And they're just, you know, side effects. They're amazing. So Uh, if you've got a clinical pharmacist in endocrinology or in diabetes, they can be hugely helpful. How would you know that? I mean, would that be, how would you know where to find somebody like that? Yeah. Most, I would, I would think that most offices would have them as a part of their staff so that you would probably see their name on something related to your clinic. I did my training in Colorado and we had a huge clinical pharmacy group there that were very involved in seeing our patients, but I don't know if it's like that everywhere, but we've got a couple that we work with in our clinic and they are just so fantastic and smart. And they're the ones that you see the most really. Yeah. yeah. So that's another option if you're struggling to find an endo. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll say about just the frustration with finding an endocrinologist is that luckily with telehealth now, people have a lot more options that way. So I think um, for us in Oregon, telehealth has allowed us to do a lot more virtual visits, which has been awesome. So people have to schlep all the way, you know, into Portland and and have an in-person appointment. I, um, I do think there's limitations. Like for us, we can't practice outside of the state that you're licensed in. So that I think some providers get a lot of state licenses so they can practice in communities or other states rather than the one they just live in. So for us, we're pretty restricted to Oregon and maybe Washington if you've got a license there. But you know, I see, I love virtual visits for diabetes. It's so yeah. people can upload their stuff and yeah. you can see what they look like because you have to wear a mask and you can hear them better. And then you can kind of see their stuff and you know meet their pets and see their family members and all that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, so... Um, that's another option. And usually we see, I see people in person once a year. I would think that's, that's especially helpful for people in remote areas. I mean, 
I'm fortunate because where I live, we have big hospitals, you know, 10 minutes from my house. But um, but I've heard stories of people driving two hours when they come to their endo appointment, and which is just seems crazy. But but to be able to service more people virtually, just I mean, that seems like a no brainer. That's like, oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Benefit. Yeah. And I think you know, a lot of us were nervous that that whole option was going to go away at some point. And I, I don't think that's going to happen, which is really good news because I think it's such an efficient way for things like diabetes. Good. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I, the only thing right. that you're not getting is like somebody looking at your feet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is important, but other like primary care doctors can do that kind of thing too. Exactly. I think that was kind of the, those were the big categories that we wanted to I agree. Yeah. Was there anything else that you had thought that we should? I mean, the only other thing, and this could be a whole other episode, but I just, another episode could be from the patient's perspective, way to empower the patient when you do have those appointments. I think there's some helpful things that we can share with people to make the most out of those appointments to just help them have confidence in, in their own voice. And, um, But yeah, I think we've answered the questions that we wanted to answer and hopefully help people understand a little bit more. It's a whole system and everybody is, we all have the same goal. I mean, my doctor wants me to be feel good as we have the same goal. So hopefully we raised awareness in some areas for people. Yeah. And I think I um, will have some links in the show notes to some resources that I found online for things to think about when you're trying to find an endocrinologist and Um, that I thought was kind of helpful. I say this to people frequently that your relationship with your provider is a relationship. And if you don't feel like that relationship is working for you for a lot of reasons, then it may be time to find somebody else. And that's totally okay. Of course, nowadays you might be limited of who that can be and how how much it's going to cost and all that kind of thing. But, um, but it is really important. I think to your point too, of advocating for yourself, if you really feel like that you're just not getting your needs met or being heard or then it might be time to, to look for somebody else. I just wish there were more options yeah. um, in the endocrine community. And you know that my colleagues have just, uh, people have been working really hard under difficult circumstances for the last few years with COVID. And so often they're, they may not be them best, their best selves always. So I think that's another thing is just if, if the first time it didn't work, it wasn't a great fit, maybe give them a second chance. Yeah. <laughs> because the second time around, it may be a different experience, but. That's a great yeah. point. Yeah. Doctors are people too. They are. Well, so. I wish, I mean, I don't wish because I'd rather be your friend than have you be my doctor. But I think anybody, <laughs> anybody who has you is very lucky, very fortunate. And, and then maybe the only thing going, the hope for the future is that maybe more people will start getting into endocrinology. Yes. I mean, just yeah. continuous growth of diagnoses. Right. I yeah. Know. I think, I mean, so, you know, I, I love what I do. I have all these relationships with people. I, you know, I see people through their family when they're young, when they have families, as they get older, I've had, you know, it's, it's a really unique privilege um, to, to do what I do. And there's a lot of thinking and working with people's behaviors. And and I'm often really curious about why people make the choices that they do and that kind of thing. It's, it's a very fun, interesting uh, specialty, but for whatever reason, I mean, but hopefully that'll change. People will show more interest and we'll see. Yeah. That'll be our hope for the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Embracing Diabetes with your podcast hosts, Dr. Liz Stevens and myself, Amy Stockwell, with music by Noah Mortola. 
We hope that you enjoyed our conversation and maybe felt inspired or informed or less alone or all of the above. Please subscribe to Embracing Diabetes on all major podcast platforms and leave a comment, question, or review. Thanks again. We hope you'll come back for more.